Okay. Let's take him on. We get to Socrates. And as Nietzsche pointed out, every philosopher wrestles with that bald bastard. <laughs> and should. And should. And I'm no exception to this. I did one of my earliest three-parter shows was about the trial and death of Socrates and my theory about it. And this is going to be lengthy, passionate, deep, and powerful, so brace yourselves, get ready, don't try and fall asleep to this one. I just won't have it. So, as you know, I have a theory that the only philosophers we've ever really heard of, or who are allowed to be taught, are those that did not interfere with the interests of those in power. And throwing myself on the sacrificial altar of deplatforming was to test that theory to some degree, right? Okay, so if I continue to be inconvenient to people in power, what will happen? Now, of course, I never would have been platformed if it wasn't for the internet, so the deplatforming was, you know, the, the gatekeepers were down, I was able to speak and all that, right? So whenever somebody is called a famous philosopher, my first thought is that they either directly serve or at least do not interfere with those in power, those who have coercive power over us. Because if they did, you wouldn't be hearing about them, right? So before we get into Socrates and his life and his arguments, it's important to understand why I do what I do. And I don't want to make this about me, of course, right? This is about Socrates. But we have to look at what Socrates did not do or what he was unable to achieve. And Socrates and what philosophy as a whole has been unable to achieve. If somebody has the goal of improving something, let's say you run a business and you hire a consultant that's supposed to improve things and he makes things worse, or they don't improve, you would not, cons and, and you follow his advice, right? You follow his instructions. You would not consider him to be a great consultant. If you hire someone to fix your car and they break your car even more, if you hire someone to fix your teeth and they make your teeth worse, uh, we look at them as not being good at their job, right? So if you look at the discipline of philosophy, at least of Western philosophy, with Socrates right there in the center, to ask yourself, the big-ass question. If you look at other disciplines that involve reason and evidence, right? Philosophy is supposed to involve reason and evidence. Certainly reason. If you look at the other disciplines, you know, I was saying this to my daughter at dinner, you know, it's just wild when you think about 60-odd years between the first bicycle-powered flight at Kitty Hawk with Orville and Wilbur Wright to landing on the moon. That's just 60 years. Scientific method is arguably about 400 years old, and it took a long time to get started because of 300 years of religious warfare in Europe. It's only really been in the last 100, 120 years that going to a doctor actually helped improve your health rather than make it worse because they did crazy things like put leeches on you and all kinds of stuff, right? You look at physics, look at physics, look at the progress in physics. They didn't even have, in biology, medicine, they didn't even have germ theory until the late 19th century. Physics is unbelievable advancements, and if you want to look at the real advancements, the really unbelievable advancements, look at agriculture. My God, 
And I wrote about a whole novel about this, Just Poor. You can get it at justpoornovel.com. Agricultural productivity from the Quattrocento, from sort of mid to late Middle Ages through to the Renaissance. Agricultural productivity went up 10, 15, 20 times, right? Crop rotation, winter crops, there's a wide variety of things that they were able to do. And because of that, you got an urban proletariat, you could have the Industrial Revolution. Engineering, my God, look at engineering. When I was a child, there were no personal computers. I had to lay out 1200 bucks in, oh gosh, 1983, 1984, something like that, maybe 1982. No, 1981, I think it was. I had to lay out 1200 bucks for a computer with 8K. And I had to load programs using a cassette tape, which was 1K per minute. 1K per minute. I wanted to load an 8K game. It took me eight minutes to load it, and you had to find the right place on the tape. Now, look at the progress in these fields. That's what I measure philosophy by, and always have, and always will. I want to measure philosophy by science, engineering, medicine, mathematics. They finally solved Fermat's Law Theorem in the 90s. That's my yardstick. That's the exponential improvement that I measure philosophy against. It's why we're here. It's why we're able to have this conversation. It's why most of us are alive, or at least healthy, at this point in our lives. Half of us would die before the age of five in the past. Look at all of that staggering progress. 60 years and change from a bicycle-powered 100-foot flight to going to the moon. 60 years and change. Whew. Now let's compare that to philosophy, shall we? Look at the questions that science has answered just in the last 150 years. Let's go 170 years, right? Look at all the questions that science answered. Nature of the universe, structure of the atom, origins of the species. Almost every conceivable physical law has been discovered and examined. Subatomic particles, quarks. It's peered into 100 billion different galaxies across a 13 billion year span of the universe. It sent probes past Pluto, for God's sakes. That's just science. It's allowed us to look into bodies without opening them up. It's allowed us to cure diseases before they even arrive. That's science. Look at that progress. You could just do a hundred years. From, I mean, just commercial travel. There's virtually none in 1922, 2022. Well, I guess we're kind of back to the dark ages as far as that goes, but the technology is incredible, right? So that's my template. See, disciplines based on reason and evidence can make unbelievable, staggering, immeasurable, intense progress in a handful of decades. I got my first computer when I was, what, 12? Maybe 56. Just look at what's changed in 
44 years. 44 years. Philosophy has had over 2,500 years. God, it drives me mad. Literally, it's crazed bees in my brain, murder hornets floating around. At the staggering lack of freaking progress that philosophy has made in 2,500 years. You name me one fact that philosophy has established to the layperson, or even among professionals, beyond any doubt. You tell me one absolute fact that all philosophers agree on and has been communicated to the layman. Well, of course, there's not one fact that all philosophers agree on. Not one, not one, 2,500 years old, this discipline. More, but, well, just Socrates almost. 2,500 years. Not one fact, not one conclusion. Let's say you give a guy 10 years to build your bridge. You come back after 10 years, you've paid him $10 million. He comes back and he says, I don't even know if bridges exist, man. I don't know if gravity exists. I don't know if you exist. Hey, you cashed the check, didn't you? I don't know if the check exists. <laughs> Good death. Thanks for the money. That was a lot of fun with it. But uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, would you say, ah, oh, great job, man. Gave you $10 million to build a bridge. After 10 years, I come back and you don't even know if bridges exist. Okay, this is so, just so you understand. When I came tearing into the intellectual scene, like Bruce the Shark in the Jaws movie, it's out of a sense of incredible frustration and humiliation. Right, what do you hear? You, you're at a dinner party and, and you hear someone say, oh, I'm a philosopher. What do you think? State-sanctioned wanker. Fucking ookie-cooker, circle jerk of nonsense. I'd like not to be embarrassed to be a philosopher, but in order to not be embarrassed to be a philosopher, <laughs> philosopher, philosophy has to start upping its game. So just so you understand, when I came tearing in like a giant Lucifer's hammer comet entering the atmosphere, that's out of like, holy shit. I mean, pull your socks up. <laughs> What's to say? <laughs> Drop your... Drop, drop your chickens and grab your socks. <laughs> Fill your boots, and we we gotta get like we gotta move. We gotta resuscitate this thing. Any discipline that's lasted for twenty five hundred years and consumed billions of hours and billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Public spending in universities, public spending in philosophy has gone on like unbelievably, hugely, immensely, widely, enormously, deeply. You name it, right? So any philosophy, any discipline, any mental discipline. It's been around for 2,500 years and produced not one certainty. Not one fucking certainty after 2,500 years. Well, first of all, just stop it. Just stop it. Like, Christianity has produced moral certainties at an infinitely superior and greater rate and proportion to philosophy. I mean, if you're a Christian, you have moral certainties. 
And the moral certainties, even if you're not a Christian, are written into the common law as a whole in the Western countries. So just so you understand, I hope that you understand this unbelievable frustration at the interstellar gag order on the value of philosophy that's been going on as long as there's been philosophy. Now, part of this whole series is to help explain why with reference to the individual philosophers. Why on earth has the father of all disciplines, right, reason and evidence preceded, the reason and evidence in philosophy preceded science, preceded biology, preceded engineering, preceded medicine by sometimes thousands of years? So why... It's like saying that the, the trunk is diseased, but the limbs, branches, and leaves are incredibly healthy. How can the mental discipline based on reason and evidence that gives birth to all of the other incredibly successful dis- disciplines remain so unbelievably moribund and dead itself? Not just dead, but murdering, killing. Technology serves those in power. Engineers serve those in power. Medicine, well, those in power want to stay well. Physics, well, they need their good weapons, so they need their physicists. They need their scientists, right? So they're happy to water the branches and the leaves, but they got to keep the trunk and the roots dead. Because the fruits of philosophy serve those in power, while genuine philosophy, well, it really doesn't. So we got a discipline, 2,500 years old, produced not one goddamn thing. I'm, I'm not kidding about that. I've been studying this stuff for 40 years. And if I were, you know, travel dude, I'd be on the streets. And I'd say, what's anything that you've learned from philosophy that is true? I'd go to philosophy departments and I would just talk to people in the hallways. Hey, a philosophy student. Okay, tell me something you've learned that you're absolutely certain of about philosophy. You say that to a scientist. You say that, I mean, not a social scientist, right? You say that to a physicist. They'll rattle you off for a week. All the things they've learned for absolute certain from physics. Go to people and say, what can you prove is true based on philosophy? They wouldn't have a clue. Right? If you ask them to look at their cell phone and say, what's something that you believe works based on engineering? They can point to their cell phone. They can point to uh, the cars. They can point to the lights. They can point to electricity. They can point to their water. They can, anything, right? They're all, provi- they're all providing actual value to people in the world. What has philosophy accomplished in 2,500 years? It's the oldest mental human discipline. And, of course, religion presages or or precedes, really, I guess both. Religion precedes philosophy, but I'm talking about sort of the mental discipline of reason and evidence. Philosophy is the oldest, and it has borne absolutely no fruit at all. Nothing. No certainty, no virtues, no morals, no facts, no unassailable arguments. And people have lived on having to deny the value of philosophy in order to just live their lives. That's why when I had the debate about the guy with metaphysics, I yelled at him. He said, where's reality? It's like, where's where you get your food from? It's how you live. What are you talking about? Where is reality? 
It's what you punched to dial me. It's crazy. Now, of course, the purpose of making philosophy useless is so people ignore philosophy so that they don't learn how to reason. In moral terms, they don't learn anything about facts or absolutes unless they can be pushed around in this postmodern haze. And then nothing to fight for. No certainty in their mental processes. So they have to ignore values and reason and morality in order to simply survive. Like you, you take your... Your course in philosophy, as I did in university, many courses, you take your course in philosophy and you hear, well, you know, we could all be a, a brain in a tank controlled by an external demon. It's like, yeah, that's real nice. What if I don't show up for the exam? Oh, you fail. Oh, no, but, you know, it could just be, a, no, that, that's, just, that's just talk, man. It's philosophy. It's just talk. And it's alienating talk. So philosophy as a whole serves two purposes in society until <laughs> relatively recently. Philosophy serves two purposes. Number one, it... It's like a succubi, right? Uh, it, it seduces, absorbs, and destroys analytical, rational thinkers. Sucks them into its more, chews them up, and spits them out as boring, cardigan-wearing, tenured professors who, who then alienate people from philosophy, alienate people from moral thinking, alienate people from certainty. So philosophy draws in and destroys those with the greatest capacity for rational thought, and then it repels people from studying philosophy and finding value in philosophy. It repels people by being so uncertain and so brain-destroying and certainty-eroding. So, when I said, when I look at philosophers, I say, okay, how do you handle the state and how do you handle parenting? It's two biggest power disparities where you need the most morals. Now, if you have a famous philosopher, I say, how do you serve the state? Now, again, like 15 years ago, I did a whole show. I think it was 2008. I did a whole show on this 14 years ago. Um, and I'll link to that below. You can uh, you can look at that. It's a good show. It's a good series of shows. But just so you know, philosophy has been bent to serve the will of those in power by destroying rational thinkers who might challenge their unjust authority and by alienating people from philosophy by having it endlessly chase its own tale of uncertainty to the point where people have to avoid it just in order to survive. This is why I don't trust people who've never had a job with manual labor. You ever worked with your hands for pay? How am I going to do in the far wastes of the Canadian North at the age of 18 with a flamethrower to break through the permafrost to drill. How am I going to do if I don't believe in reality, don't believe in objective truth, don't believe in facts, don't believe in material empiricism? And right, how am I going to die? So I just want to give you that background as we get to Socrates. So we have a discipline that has been bent to the will of power and produced not one single certainty in 2,500 years. <laughs> I mean, I just, just so you understand, when I was an entrepreneur, I mean, which I've now been for over 25 years, so it's when I was an entrepreneur in the software world, right? So when I had to create the next version of the software, first I did it on my own, and then when I had employees, I, we would go off-site. And I actually, I lived on the off-site 
office. I lived there. We rented an apartment, and I lived there, and I worked day and night to create the next version of the software. And we needed a new version where they needed good features, and I had great ideas for it, and we created the new version of the software. Oh, I think it took about four months and I wasn't working alone at that point. There were two other people. And I would work there night and day for four days a week. And I'd spend one day a week at the main office. I literally lived where I built. Slept there, woke up, built, ordered Thai food, built, <laughs> slept, woke up, played a video game with my friends and coworkers, worked. And so in, in four months, right, I had an estimate. Here's what I'm going to produce. Now, if I hadn't produced anything in four months after consuming obviously some capital and investment in order to have the time and, and resources to create the software. If I produce nothing, what would the board say? Wait, man, you're the chief technical officer. We've been paying you for four months at whatever the salary that I was making. We've been paying you for four months, and you got nothing? To hell, man. And there would be serious consequences to that. Now, if I had said... Well, it's impossible for me to produce anything. But here's what I think we should have. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's bitter, pained, agonizing, but still hearty laughter. If I had said to the board, well, I can't possibly produce any new software, but here's a list of features that we should have, what would they say? And I would say, and they would say, well, what, what are you talking about? You can't produce any software. It's like, no, I can't produce any software. The one thing I know about myself is that I can't produce any software. It's like, well, then why are you in the software business? Oh, because I want to convince everyone that software doesn't exist. Oh, and how are you going to convince them that software doesn't exist? Oh, I'll send them emails. Wait, what? You're going to send emails, which is a software program to tell people that software doesn't exist. And you think that software doesn't exist, but you want all these features in the software. They would have, like, literally, they would have a serious meeting about my mental health. They were like, they wouldn't have no idea how to answer that, but they sure as hell wouldn't give me any more money. No, seriously. I mean, when I was a, a software executive, I had to have um, blood tests and health questions and examinations and so on because, uh, especially when we sold the company, nobody's going to buy a company if the you know, if you don't have insurance on the key people there who need to stay alive or be able to work at least in order for the company to have value, right? The life insurance and health insurance and accident insurance was through the yin-yang, right? And it got to the point where none of the senior management team that I was on, right, there were three of us, yeah, three of us, and we could never take the same flight just in case the flight went down, right? So we became very valuable. But, you know, I wouldn't have been very valuable if I'd have said, it's impossible for me to produce software because software doesn't exist, but here's all the features that software should have. You understand the analogy, I'm sure. With Socrates, so you've got a discipline that's produced nothing, worse than nothing, because it's consumed, right? If I don't produce anything, like, I don't know, let's say I say I have some side project. It doesn't interfere with my business and I end up not producing anything. And the business is like, well, that's a drag, but, you know, at least we weren't paying, you weren't consuming resources. Did it on your own time. But if I am consuming resources and producing nothing, four months, I would have been in, I mean, they would have, I don't know what they, I, I can't even imagine what they would have done. But I know that I would have, if, if, if an employee said to me they were building a project that I was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for 
and they they produce nothing except weird, esoteric, self-contradictory statements and promise that they weren't going to ever be able to produce anything, I wouldn't pay them. I would fire them. I would fire them. So how has philosophy been able to keep its job for 2,500 years while producing nothing of any certainty whatsoever? Why does society pay? Why do the people in power pay philosophers? Why are philosophers honored and I'm deplatformed? Again, I'm not saying this out of bitterness. This was an experiment. This is an A-B test, right? What happens if I don't serve those in power? What if I happens if I use philosophy to serve the people? What if I use philosophy to help and serve the people? Not necessarily at the expense of those in power, but without concern for the value I would be providing for those in power. Right? What happens if philosophy helps people? <laughs> well, uh, we know, right? And again, I say this without any bitterness. It would have been weird if I hadn't. <laughs> this is why it didn't bother me that much, right? It's like it would be kind of weird because I have this whole theory, right? What are the people in power paying for when they pay for philosophy? They're not paying for certainty. Well, they're paying to discredit philosophy. So who discredited philosophy? <laughs> Here we are circling. I'm circling. I'm a little nervous about this one because taking on the Socrates is a, is a ballsy move, to put it mildly. But, you know, forget about me, the ballsy move or whatever. Just, you know, hear my case. You shouldn't have been put to death, but hear my case. And you can tell me if I'm being fair or reasonable or unreasonable. I'm obviously perfectly happy to hear. These are not uh, ironclad arguments, but I think there's a hell of a lot of evidence, and I think the reasoning is pretty damn tight. So let me hear the case. Hear the case against him. So when you've had a discipline that's consumed hundreds of billions of dollars, millions and millions of hours, and has produced nothing, and has produced toxins, it's one thing if someone can't fix your car. It's another thing if they turn it into a Terminator 2-style puddle on the parking lot floor. Now, if the discipline has mostly sucked and blown sucked in intelligence people and blown out disreputable auras to philosophy. If the discipline has sucked and produced nothing for 2,500 years, and that's bad, and like, sorry, that's just terrible. It's it's beyond terrible. It's the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world. The inability of philosophy to produce one truth that even philosophers accept, let alone that if, 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 if the philosophers accepted the general truth, but the general public rejected it, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world, but if even the experts don't, right? There's tons of stuff like uh, intelligence community researchers stuff that is horribly rejected and violently rejected by the general public. Okay, but you know they're they're the monks, you know, keeping the the books alive during the dark ages, right? But if the discipline has completely failed, and worse than failed, has made society worse for 2,500 years not only failed to produce anything of truth and value, but corrupted people into thinking that philosophy is worse than useless. If it's that bad, if it's that bad, and there's one guy at the center of the honor roll of something that bad, then we're looking at the head gangster. If philosophy is centered around Socrates, 
and philosophy has produced nothing of value and has destroyed value for 2,500 years. Well, there's a reason why Socrates is elevated to the center of the canon of philosophy. And it's because he's intimately wrapped up in philosophy not producing anything of value for 2,500 years. So, okay, let's do a little bit of biography, and this will probably be a two-parter because it's not like I can uh, take on the Athenian in, uh, in one go. My heart's like rapid at this point because this is uh, holy ground, right? But I will try to be respectful for once. <laughs> okay, Socrates born in Athens, 469 BC. His father was a stonecutter or a stonemason. His mother was a midwife. He is arguably history's most influential philosopher. And he didn't write anything down. I mean, Aristotle wrote things down. They were lost. We have his students' notes and so on. Socrates recorded, uh, accordingly made, made no writings of his own, which is suspect. Totally sus. So how do we know? Well, he had two students. Well, more than two, but these were the two who wrote about it the most. Uh, Plato, of course, and Xenophon. And the playwright Aristophanes wrote a play called The Clouds, which depicted him as a kind of a con man, and Socrates is kind of a con man, and so on. And, of course, Plato is the big one with his Platonic dialogues and all of that. So Socrates is the main character, and this is where the Socratic method gets talked about. And it's funny because they say that, oh, you know, they have all of these aesthetic things about Socrates, you know, how deep and powerful he was and how master of his own, master of his own uh, uh, disciplines and uh, self, self-control. And he would, you know, stand uh, in the snow for a whole day thinking about a problem when he was a soldier and uh, he had this immense self-discipline and, and all of that. And it's like, well, but he was also, cons- he was called fat, right? So not some super self-discipline when it comes to um, grooming. He was famously ugly and uh, famously bad at uh, personal hygiene. Uh, Dirty, barefooted, he owned almost nothing, was not at all good at providing for his family. And he was, of course, a stonecutter and a soldier, and he really only got into the philosophical conversations after he retired. And uh, the very brief story is uh, that um, Socrates... um, was curious as to who the wisest person was in the world. And a friend of his went to the Oracle at Delphi and said, who's the wisest person? The Oracle at Delphi can't tell a lie. It's a religious thing, right? The Oracle at Delphi couldn't tell a lie. So the, and people went from all over Europe to go to the Oracle. So Socrates' friend went to the Oracle and said, who's the wisest? And the Oracle said, the wisest is Socrates. So his friend comes back to Socrates and says, hey, man, you're number one. You're the wisest. And Socrates says, oh, come on. Don't be ridiculous. I'm not wise. I, I, know, I know nothing. I'm not wise. But the oracle can't lie. The oracle can't lie. The oracle says I'm the wisest, but I know nothing. The hell? Well, what am I supposed to do with that? Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. What I'll do is I'll go and um, and verify. I mean, I can't be the wisest because I know nothing, but the oracle says I'm the wisest. So I'll go. I'll go check this out. So... He went to all of the famous orators and he went to the famous philosophers and the wise men and the judges and the justices and he went to the artists and he went to, to everyone, right? And and just would keep asking them, right? So he goes to some guy and he says, uh, some guy says, oh, I know what, he says, what is courage, right? You're a 
supposed to be very wise in military matters. And he says, what is courage? And the guy says, ah, courage is standing firm in a battle. Courage is standing firm in a battle and not giving way. And Socrates says, um, okay, uh, what about if you're supposed to retreat and you're facing an overwhelming force and if you stay, your friends have to stay with you and you're going to get killed? Is that brave? Because we think of bravery as a good thing, but in this situation where you kind of got to retreat, then standing your ground is a bad idea, going to get you and everyone else killed. And the guy has to say, oh, you know, I guess, yeah, well, okay, that's a counterexample, so... And, and you just have to asterisk, asterisk, refine, refine, split the atom, split the atom, and then you got nothing. Nothing! What is justice? Well, justice is paying what you owe. Okay, so would that include returning, say, you borrow an axe from someone to cut down a tree, and then they come to you and say they want their axe back. Should you give it to them? Well, yeah, that's kind of paying what you owe. Oh, yeah, well, what if your friend has gone crazy and he's going to use the axe to kill his wife? Do you give it back to him then? Well, okay... No, you don't give him the axe. Oh, okay, so justice isn't just paying what you owe and returning things that you borrowed and all that, right? Boom, boom, slice, 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 dice, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing. And people's heads spin, but they got to live in the world, so they just move on, right? I think it was Alcibiades, what he was... The life of pleasure is the best, the life of pleasure. Oh, that's so good, hedonism, life of pleasure. Oh, you ever have this thing where you've got this itch... And, you know, you just, you get that spot. Oh, my God. You get that spot. It's so good. Oh, that's so pleasurable. So if the life of pleasure is the best, then the best possible life would be having a perpetual itch that you're perpetually scratching. Well, that can't be right. <laughs> it's an argument from absurdity. Well, okay, maybe the life of pleasure is right. So it just goes around and disassembles everyone, disassembles everything. 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 So, and he went to the artists. The artists knew, and he's like, oh, you've had these most profound works with the most moving and wonderful speeches and, and depth of character and drama. And, and he said that the artists didn't even know what the hell they were doing. They just kind of acted by instinct and they didn't really have a clue <laughs> about what they were doing. Certainly couldn't explain it to me. So Socrates goes around and around and around and he does this in public sometimes and just annoys everyone and ties them up in knots and tangles them and have some trip over their own feet every time they try to make a move. But see, it's kind of a troll thing to do, right? But he's got a perfect story. He's like, hey, man, don't blame me. I'm just trying to figure out what the oracle was saying because, you know, the oracle can't lie. She said I was the wisest. So, you know, don't don't get mad at me. Don't, you know, I'm just I'm just doing the job of the oracle. Just trying to figure out what's going on, man. I'm not I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm not trying to disrespect you. I'm I'm just trying to find the wisest person because I can't figure out what the oracle's talking about. Right. So then, oh, there's this revelation. Dun, dun, dramatic music, entry of Arabs, cherubs and, and angels and trumpets and all that. And Socrates, oh, man, I got it. Oh, man, I can't believe it took me that long. Holy goodness. Um. Okay. I get what the oracle's trying to say now. Done and dusted. Okay. When the oracle said to my friend that Socrates is the wisest, the oracle was telling the truth. Now, I was confused because I said, well, wait a minute, I I don't know anything. Ah, but that's wisdom. That's what the oracle meant. That 
I know that I don't know anything, whereas everyone I talk to thinks that he knows something, but he doesn't. And knowing that you know nothing is far better than the pretense of knowing something that you don't, in fact, know. So he says, I don't know what love is. I don't know what justice is. I don't know what wisdom is. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what any of these things are. But at least I know that. Everyone else says, oh, yeah, I know what justice is. I know what wisdom is. I And there's a puncture of the balloon. And it, off it goes. Gone. So I'm wise because I know that I know nothing, whereas other people are unwise because they claim wisdom which they don't, in fact, possess. Right? In other words, being broke is better than being in possession of counterfeit currency because at least you're not stealing from people. So this Socratic method is, I mean, it's got the argument that there's got to be something in, all courageous acts must have something in common in order for them to be courageous. Otherwise, why would we have the word? There's got to be some, some essence to all these courageous acts and we just got to figure out what it is. And once we figure out what the essence of courage is, then we can say that we know courage. So then people would say, well, this is courageous. Ah, but what if? Ah, uh, you find a counterexample. Oh, okay, well, that's right. And, right, you can't ever get that. Now, Wittgenstein, we'll get to Wittgenstein. He's got a whole other family resemblance thing that, that uh, goes on where he says, you know, when you, you see a family photo, you know, everyone kind of looks similar, but they don't look exactly the same. There's not one, oh, that left nostril, that's exactly the same between them. There's just a family resemblance. So when you're looking at courageous acts, there's not one thing that makes courage perfectly explicable in all possible human circumstances, but they have a, a family resemblance. Courageous acts have a family resemblance, and trying to find that one thing is, is pointless. It's like saying, what is the one feature that each one of these family members share in perfect harmony, in perfect synchronicity? Well, there isn't one, but there's certainly family resemblance, right? So this idea that, you know, create a rule, break a rule, create a rule, break a rule, that all rules can be broken. All definitions have asterisks, right? That has messed up philosophy for 2,500 years. And you know how it works. I mean, this very early in my public career, I got these scenarios just come pouring in. And it came, came right out of the Socratic method. Right, so you got to respect property rights. Respect property rights. As UPB, respect property rights. I literally had the flagpole scenario. Guy falls off a roof on an apartment building, but he manages to grab a flagpole that's by the window of your apartment. You're not home. Your condo. You own the condo. And he's hanging from the flagpole. Is he allowed to kick in your window to save himself from falling to his death? Ah, well, if he is, you see, then clearly his life is more important than your property rights. Life is more important than property. Therefore, we can have a redistributive tax system and a welfare state, right? Right, or people say, oh, someone's drowning in the marina. And I want you to jump on that boat, grab that lifesaver and, and throw it to them so they don't drown. You say, well, it's not my boat. I want to respect the property rights of the boat owner and I don't want to take his property. So we're just going to have to let the guy drown. Oh. Man, starving on the streets. Uh, he's going to die if he doesn't get food today. He sees a baker uh, and a loaf of bread that's unattended. He grabs the bread and eats it. And, and is that wrong? Is that bad? Should he just starve to death rather than violate someone's property rights? Your life is more important than property. Therefore, I can take your property if I'm hungry. 
therefore socialism, right, or something like that. These endless, and this is Socrates, right? Oh, well, uh, property rights are absolute. Well, I can think of a scenario where you'd violate property rights. It would be a good thing. Everyone would do it. Right? Sorry. It's not an argument, but it's kind of fun to do. Right, so you know. You know this happens all the time. You propose a rule, break a rule. Propose a rule, break a rule. Propose an absolute. Now, this is all physics envy, right? Because physics doesn't allow for exceptions to the absolutes. Our gravity is gravity, man. Electromagnetism is electromagnetism. Hell, magnetism is magnetism. Light is light, right? There's no asterisk. There's no except when or but, you know. So, I mean, you say, oh, things fall to the ground. What about helium balloons, man? Okay, well, things whose buoyancy is less than the gravity... Uh, fall to the ground, right? Refine things, that's fine. So, but they're all absolutes. And so philosophy, and, and of course a lot of sciences and disciplines have science envy. The social sciences used to before they went for, completely gave up and went postmodernism in the way that psychiatry totally gave up protecting children and started drugging them. Well, not totally, but largely. So you propose a rule. Human life is sacrosanct. What about self-defense, man? Property rights are absolute. What about a guy hanging from a flagpole, man? So, oh, uh, telling the truth is good. Well, what about the people who break into your house and demand to know where your wife is so they can kill her? Well, so you lie to them, so lying can't be an absolute value. Right? Propose a rule, find an exception. Propose a rule, find an exception. And you wonder why philosophy's made no progress in 2,500 years, or 5,000 years, if you want to count the pre-pre-pre-Socratics. You propose a rule, you break a rule. This is why the bridge never gets built. So, this is my issue. I know the Socratic method is like, well, you know, that's that's the basis of law and that's the basis of intellectual inquiry and you, you want to find these exceptions and you want to make sure you don't propose unjust rules, you know, but... I mean, practical considerations, like things which actually have to produce tangible value, don't accept these exceptions, Right? If you're locked in a room with someone and they choke to death because they have no oxygen, you're assumed to be the killer. Well, it could be the case that once every 20 universes, all of the oxygen through Brownian motion, all of the oxygen atoms just go to the top of the room just on her side. Or just wherever she goes, there just don't happen to be any oxygen atoms. Yeah, good luck with that in a court defense. Or, you know, you build a bridge, and it could be the case that, you know, there's still random motion in any of the bridge's uh, trusses, and, and, you know, it could be the case that they just all separate and collapse once every 20 universes. It could theoretically... Right, they don't, right? So even if, I mean, there are exceptions in terms of the predictable properties of matter in that some of the predictable properties of matter are that matter is unpredictable, Brownian motion and all, and it could happen that your bridge could founder and or break or fall and there would be no you'd have no culpability, but nobody, right? 
once every 20 universe when we're in a tiny time slice of one universe doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, but you can't build a bridge because once every 20 universes, you you know, how are you going to deal with that? Oh, man, I guess we don't get a bridge then. I guess we can't get to that place with the food. We'll just starve to death because once every 20 universes, the bridge might change location because brownie in motion, blah, 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 right? It's not how, right? So even in, in the realm of physics, there are asterisks, right? This bridge will stand, except for once every 20 universes, blah, 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 right? And I'm not sure I even believe in the 20 universes thing, but it's, I think, a reasonable way of, of talking about it in terms of some scientific conjecture. So you can't have any certainty about anything. I seem to be talking to you, but what if I am a brain in a tank being manipulated by a malicious demon? For that, right? Well, you can't have property rights because, you know, somebody could be starving and you or drowning, or hanging from a flagpole, man. None of these are absolute. Now, Socrates was a TFL, a total freaking liar. He was a total liar. Like, I'm sorry, he just was, based upon the reports, right? I'm going to go on what uh, Plato, who did love him, right, and and, uh, so on. I'm going to go with what Plato said is true. Hey, man, I don't know anything. I know nothing, man. No, you do, jerk. Of course you do. Because the whole reason that you went on this big walkabout, this gypsy voyage of discovery, the whole reason you went on it was because you knew for absolute certainty, with an absolute certainty, you knew the oracle could not lie. The oracle could not lie. So don't tell me you don't know anything for certain, because the only reason you went and questioned everyone is because you knew for certain that the oracle couldn't lie. There's a certainty for you. It's not a philosophical certainty, a bit of a mystical one, but there's a certainty. So when he says, I know that I know nothing, and now I understand that the oracle can't lie, and that's what she was meant to know, right? <laughs> he knew that the people he was talking to existed. He knew that they had to be logically consistent in order to make their argument stick. Oh, and by the by, just before I forget, right, because I don't want to leave you with this uncertainty stuff, right? So early in my career, there was a lot of these asterisks these lot of exceptions because people were just like hoping to stump me like i just wandered in off the hayride and hey looks like there'll be some kind of philosophy happening here <laughs> i guess i'll give it a shot <laughs> let's give it a try pump out some moonshine and let's break us up some syllogisms like they was catfish i have no idea what accent that was by the way and nobody will ever be able to tell just channeling space aliens from the planet tennessee anyway so the answer is it's simple. I was, property rights exist independent of time. So if you have reason to believe or a reasonable belief that somebody will yet let you use their property, in other words, if they could give you permission after the fact, that's fine. Right? So if someone's drowning and there's a boat with a loose lifesaver on the deck you can jump on the boat, grab the lifesaver, and throw it to the person who's drowning. Why? Because if the boat owner was there, the boat owner would certainly do the same thing. Or if you were to phone the boat owner and say, someone's drowning, can I use your lifesaver? They'd say, why are you even calling? Use the damn lifesaver. It's just sitting there. Save someone's life. That's a great story. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. Now, of course, you can come and think of someone, what if he just really hates that person and wants them to die? But that doesn't matter because, again, you have to have a reasonable belief. 
a reasonable belief that the person would let you use their property to save a life, right? If you are really good friends with your neighbor and they have left a shovel, they're on vacation, they left a shovel out front of their house and you desperately need a shovel for some reason, like you, I don't know, uh, maybe you found uh, some vanilla-scented ants like you were stepping on your lawn and you stepped in soft and there was, you didn't know what was down there. You start digging it up and all these crazy vanilla scented ants under there, right? I'm not speaking from some experience, actually, I kind of am, right? So, you you know, you got to figure out how far these ants are, whether they made it to your house. So you, you grab your neighbor's shovel and you use it and then you return it when you're done. Now, have you stolen anything? No, you have not. Did you get permission, explicit permission from the owner to take his shovel? No. But you're, you have a complete reasonable expectation that if you said, hey, man, I got these crazy soft spots on my lawn. I need to borrow your shovel so I can dig it. My, I lost my shovel or whatever, right? Of course your neighbor's going to be saying, yeah, you know, take it, absolutely. Anything else I can do to help? Good relationship with your neighbor, and he borrows your stuff, you borrow his stuff, right? So if you've got reasonable expectation that someone will let you use their property, in other words, if they will almost certainly give you permission after the fact, then you can use their property because you're not violating their property rights. Because if you get permission after the fact, that's the same as getting permission before the fact. And if you have a reasonable expectation of getting permission after the fact, you can... Now, of course, anyone can say, well, you know, I broke into that bank vault by drilling out from China, and uh, I I just thought that the bank would be fine with me taking it. It's like, well, there's no reasonable expectation there. They've got it locked up. It's in a vault. They've got security guards. Of course, they don't want you to take it. Don't be ridiculous, right? Well, what about this gray area that I could invent? It's like, yeah, well... What about the bridge where the Brownian motion has all the girders suddenly go 10 feet to the left? Does that mean you're never going to build a bridge or drive on a bridge? So I don't care. I can think of this, that, or the other where it's going to be more ambiguous and ambivalent. It's like, don't care. Don't care. Do you get up every morning with the expectation that an airplane is going to crash into your house? Do you, do you sleep in the basement under a reinforced bunker because a plane might crash? Or a satellite that's untracked might crash into your into your house. <laughs> when you when you walk around, do you carry scuba gear with you everywhere you go, just in case the Brownian motion of all the oxygen atoms has them go outside where you're breathing, so you need a sudden backup air source? Could happen, man. But nobody lives like that. Nobody like so yes, can you invent some scenario where it's really ambiguous and really ambivalent, the once in a twenty lifetimes or the once in twenty lifetimes of the don't care. You know, go go just go to a, a physics conference. Go to an engineering conference and say, guys, you've got to clear the building. You have to clear the building immediately because Brownian motion could be that all of the support beams suddenly shift and the whole building will collapse. And they'll be like, oh, come on. There's no physics envy for me. Because even if you could invent some crazy exception and the amount of energy poured into, and this is from Socrates, it's all straight from Socrates. That Socrates planted this brain worm, this vampire, this parasite in people's minds that has eaten up the soul and purpose of philosophy for 2,500 years. I hope you understand why I'm a little pissed about it. Because i got to live in this stupid shadow and try and resurrect this thing from his cadaverous hands that strangled it 2,500 years ago. You've got to redefine, you've got to redefine, you've got to redefine until everyone's exhausted, you can't do anything, Ugh, right? Well, you know, if we're worried about the trusses on the bridge, the central support pillar is suddenly shifting 10 feet to the left because weirdness, because 
uh, subatomic nonsense, right? Okay, well, we'll build supports for the supports. Well, what if they, or we'll build supports for the supports as well. They could also, the whole thing could shift. Her uh, can't have a bridge, right? Uncertainty, uncertainty, possibility of the whole thing might be a brain in a tank, a demon. It's a virus that attacks certainty. And the only way you can survive is to ignore philosophy, which means you're exploited by the rulers and you don't have any moral weapons to use against them. They love it. Like Socrates' curse was, well, you've got to obey the law. Because he was like, yeah, you're going to put me to death by the law? I'm going to condemn you for the next 2,500 years, Westerners, to find it moral to submit to the law. No matter what the law is, no matter how unjust the law is, you've got to obey it. Ooh, does that serve the rulers? A very fa- and just a very famous philosopher telling everyone they have to obey unjust laws, even if they hate their laws, they've got to obey them. Like Martin Luther said, like everyone said, like uh, Kant said, like Hegel said, oh, you've got to obey the laws, even the unjust ones, even the ones that are patently immoral, you've got to obey the laws. Wow. Don't you find it interesting that the powerful people who pass the laws and enforce the laws seem to have randomly and accidentally promoted all the philosophers who say you've got to obey even the unjust laws. Wow, what an odd coincidence. What a weird coinky-dinky. <sighs> so, it's uh, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Oh, the starving guy. Oh, he's starving to death. And he can he steal a loaf of bread? Sure he can steal a loaf of bread. Then he'll go to prison. If the guy, the baker wants to press charges, he'll go to prison. Maybe not for a loaf of bread. But you know what? If he's so incompetent and crazy that he's starving to death in a city, despite the fact that there are charities and food banks and police and hospitals and, and fireplace, uh, fire engine places and, and you know the, all the places he can go, and, and there's nobody who sees a, a literal walking skeleton who's about to die of hunger and nobody offers him a coin, nobody offers him any help. Like, this is just not going to happen. The starving guy in the city, man. It's not going to happen. You know, and starving is a process that takes weeks. He couldn't do anything beforehand, right? He had no way of knowing this was coming. He didn't have any friends. He's got no family. Uh, you know, he can't, uh, what, prison break style, commit a crime so he can go to prison and get three hearts in a cot and get meals and a place to sleep, right? It's no charity. He can't go to the baker and say, hey, is there any work you can do? Because st- any work you need done, I'll sweep, I'll clean, I'll, I'll move boxes, I'll, you know, whatever you want to do. There's nothing he can do to get any food for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, it's all ridiculous, right? It's all, well, the supports for the bridge might just... Quantum physics move! They might just move! Then everyone falls! Could happen! So? So? You have only lived your life by assuming that these things don't happen. And functionally, they don't. Like once every 20 universes, who cares, right? Functionally, they don't happen. Right, You don't pick up a piece of food and say, well, arsenic could have spontaneously generated through some weird combination of X, Y, and Z could have spontaneously generated in my food and it could kill me now. Right, You don't sit there and say, well, I can't turn too quickly because in one in 20 universes, my kidney might end up outside my body. <laughs> you understand? This is crazy, right? You go to the doctor and you say, I'm concerned that if I turn too quickly, my kidney's going to end up outside my body. He's going to refer you to a shrink. He's not going to sit there and say, well, you know, that's why we can't have any medicine. You know, there's spontaneous remission in cancers, but still most people like to get their treatment, right? Even though spontaneous remission is a real thing. So it's enraging to me that Socrates is 
a brain, the Socratic method is a brain virus that attacks any certainty. And here's the thing, and Socrates would constantly chide the Athenians and say, why, why do you care so much for money and, and status and fame and, and women? And like, why do you care for these things? What you really need to care about is, is virtue and goodness and the quality of your soul and moral progress and ethics and upright, standing, courageous, blah, 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 right? It's madness, complete madness. It's like, I don't know if you exist, but I know you have to be virtuous, but I can't define virtue. Right. Remember I said uh, this four-month thing with the, um, well, it feels like a long time ago now, this four-month thing when it's building the software. And I said, uh, well, I don't, I can't build you anything because I don't know how to build software and I don't even know if software exists, but here's the features that I want. Right? That's direct parallel to Socrates. He doesn't know anything. Doesn't know he exists, doesn't know Athenians exist, doesn't know truth exists, doesn't know virtue exists, doesn't know any of these things, doesn't know reality exists, doesn't know anything, knows nothing. But you should be good, right? This many years ago, I did um, a sort of rebuttal. I called it Jennyism. There was this woman named Jenny who was posting all these. Like, was a, she was an extreme skeptic, but a social justice warrior. So she, I directly asked her, like, do you think that Europe exists? You've never been there. Do you think Europe exists? I can't be sure. I can't be sure that Europe exists. Anyway, later she then posted about how happy she was that some country in Europe had legalized gay marriage. And I took it, took it to pieces, you know, out of love. And I, I remember roaring with laughter, literally roaring with laughter, that Jenny has no idea whether Europe actually exists, but is totally happy that gay marriage is legalized there. <laughs> it's still funny to me now, 15 years later. I mean, you can look him up, uh, fdrpodcast.com. Just look up Jennyism. I think there's two parts or maybe three. And when somebody says, I know nothing, but you ought to be virtuous, what? I don't know anything, but I know you should be good. And But I don't know what goodness is. I don't know if you exist. I don't know what should means. I don't know what air I'm breathing. I don't. I know nothing. Well, except I know that the... I know that contradictions mean the argument is invalid, and I know that the oracle can't lie, and I know that I'm the wisest by claiming I know nothing. And you understand, if you're the wisest because you claim you know nothing, then all philosophy can do is attack certainty. That's all it can ever do is attack certainty. If the highest, the synchronon, the, the essence and perfection of philosophy is to know absolutely nothing, then philosophy is just this giant asshole viper that attacks any certainty and tries to poison it with doubt until nothing is left. And that comes straight out of Socrates who lied and contradicted and attacked and wrote down nothing and proposed nothing positive at all except for this vague bullshit about virtue and be nice and be high quality and possess your soul in ethical excellence. It's like, wait a minute, you don't believe in anything. And this virus that attacked the certainty that human beings require to live, is there any wonder when this viper kept striking at the certainty that required that was required by Athenians in order to live, to exist, to have a culture, to have a civilization, to have anything, to have food, to have shelter, to have anything. And this viper just doesn't exist, doesn't exist, isn't real, you know nothing, doesn't exist, doesn't exist, isn't real, you know nothing. Is there any wonder that at some point they punched back? When he's attacking everything that they need to function in the world and survive. And he raped boys. And 
He lived in a slave-based society, talking endlessly about virtue and consistency. I never thought to turn his argument to slavery, where women were locked in the houses for the most part. Men could go and have sex with boys and can go and have an affairs, but the penalty for a woman's infidelity was death, even the accusation. And so pedophile rape, uh, Socrates raped boys. Like, I'm sorry. Oh, well, it was the time. It's like, I don't care. I don't care. Because if you are into consistency and children couldn't consent to contracts, children could not be drafted into the army, so children clearly had different, but they had far fewer and far lesser, and in some cases, no moral autonomy in Athens, but they could be raped by older men. Well, children, they can't have Adult responsibilities isn't sex an adult responsibility. It's the adult males who are having sex with them. Well, right? Men should be free. Well, the, are the slaves not men? It seems that's a pretty obvious place to put the Socratic method, isn't it? But he didn't. But he didn't. Why do some men get to rule over others by force? Isn't that a contradiction, Socrates? Well, <laughs> sorry, there's a boy bending over there in the marketplace. I'll be back in about 12 minutes. And he served the state, of course, as uh, a soldier, a soldier for hire. So he was willing to kill whoever the government points at and says is the enemy. Again, said, so it's the times, it was the times. Okay, so it was the times. That's fine. Then we would look at Socrates for, like we would look at a doctor from that time. And we wouldn't sit there and say, well, the, the cures that the doctor had 2,500 years ago in Athens would be exactly the cures that we want now. It's fine if you want to give people, oh, well, okay, but, you know, raping boys was, I say, oh, well, it was consensual. It's like, no, it wasn't, because they're children. And if you're going to claim to be at the center of moral philosophy, of Western philosophy, how about you don't rape children? Is that something, is that too much to ask? I mean, we're not in France or anything. Say, well, but it was the time back in this. Okay, that's fine. Then his philosophy is for the time and we don't carry it forward. In the same way, we don't carry the medicine from the time forward. We don't carry the physics from the time forward. We don't carry the biology of the time forward. We don't carry the gods of the time forward. We don't carry the slavery of the time forward. Then don't carry this brain viper that attacks certainty forward. Don't carry it forward. You want to give him the moral excuse of being of his time? Leave him in his time. I've built something new, which has really been my goal. Lo, these 16 plus years, that's been my goal. If we can't find any certainty in philosophy after 2,500 years, shut it down. Shut it down. Let's, let's have no more talk of morality. Let's have no more talk of consistency. Let's have no more talk of syllogisms. Let's have no more talk of reason. But of course, you can't shut it down because it's useful to the rulers. And you can't shut the tree trunk down if the limbs are doing so fantastically. If reason and evidence is so powerful in science and in medicine and engineering, if reason and evidence is so powerful in all these disciplines where we go from a pedal bike plane to the moon in 60 years and change, 
If reason and evidence are so powerful in every other discipline, why not in philosophy? Because if we unleash, this is what my novel The Future is about, if we unleash the same power in philosophy that we have in science, in medicine, mathematics, engineering, we unleash the same reason and evidence. We get progress that we can't even conceive of in the same way that you take someone from a hundred years ago and show them the world now. It would be both vastly better and vastly worse than they can imagine. The vastly better is the technology from reason and evidence. The vastly worse is the continued anti-rationalism of modern philosophy. It's all philosophy. I think postmodernism is a new thing. Postmodernism is just a Socratic method in an Ivy League setting. We know nothing, we know nothing, we know nothing, we know nothing. You can't be certain, you can't be certain, you can't be certain, you can't be certain. You understand? To be bothered by uncertainty and incompleteness in the perfection of potential principles, to be bothered by uncertainty is because you have a conscience. And so the Socratic method is used to paralyze the people who have a conscience so that the people without a conscience can take over and rule. But we'll get to Foucault the child rapist and tortuous bondage expert and spreader of vile diseases. We'll get, so you understand, the, the, all this Socratic thing, it just paralyzes people with a conscience who just, you know, we don't want to be wrong and we want to make sure we're accurate and we don't want to say things that are incorrect and, and not certain and not full. So we just step back and, okay, who takes over? The people who aren't bothered by contradictions, the, the animals and the vicious and the psychopathic and the sociopathic, they just ride rampant over us because we've got no certainty to hold them back and they don't care ah it's the Walt Whitman I you say I contradict myself very well I contradict myself says Walt Whitman and then the beasts with no conscience take over because they're not bothered by contradictions postmodernism is a way of uncorking demons it's a way of opening the portal to hell driving the good people away and letting the bad people with no conscience take over and Socrates paved the way for all of that which is why I mean I would get into the the tyrant thing, right? But when when tyrants took over Athens, one of the things that was not great for the reputation of Socrates, when tyrants took over Athens, a lot of those tyrants were the students of Socrates. Because Socrates had paralyzed the people with a conscience, which energizes the people without a conscience corrupting the youth. It wasn't just the child rape, which was, I mean, there was a court case in Athens where two men were fighting over a boy. There was no particular issue with it. And it was just like, we've got to figure out who, who gets to rape the boy. But there was never any, like, maybe raping the boy is bad, right? So, yeah, he was kind of a liar. Certainly a liar in that when he said he didn't, the only thing I know for certain is I, didn't, I don't know anything for certain. It's like, no, that, well, first of all, the self-contradictory statement. Right, and this guy's so good at unraveling contradictions in others, right? No, he was just a troll who undid certainty while providing no certainty of his own, who claimed to know nothing when the whole purpose of his pursuit was because he was certain that the oracle couldn't lie. He broke things down without providing anything to build back up. 
He drove people out of the only shelter they have into a storm of the world. His students were tyrants. Oh, there was an overlap at least, or a subsection of his students were tyrants. And if you've had a discipline that's produced nothing but toxins, bullshit, and no answers for 2,500 years, you have to at least look skeptically at the guy right at the center of that tradition and say, what the fuck did you do? And why are you picked out of all the people to represent philosophy? Interesting questions. And, well, that's it. (laughs) That's quite a lot. That's it. Did I do it in an hour? No, I did not do it in an hour. But that's all right. I mean, I don't imagine I could do it in a week if I had to go in depth. But I hope this gives you some understanding about what it is that I've been doing all these years and why I tore so ferociously into these yes-but things which are designed to disassemble those with a good conscience and give full liberty, whips, fire, and scalding power to those with no conscience at all. Philosophy has paved the way for the devils to rule. And I wasn't going to let that continue if there was a damn thing I could do about it. Please help me. freedomain.com slash donate.